continue to do in our lives, Father. We're hopeful and grateful and looking forward to see your love continue to shine on us, Father, in this amazing city. We know you have wonderful plans for us, Father, and you desire to use us, Father, to reach those that are hurting, those are lost. With much turmoil in the news this week, Father, we need you more than ever, and we pray that this service honors you this morning. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. I want to welcome you all to the John Adams Middle School, which we have turned into our sanctuary this morning of worship. And uh, amen. It's awesome to see all of you like 20 feet closer than I'm used to seeing you. So it's great to be here. I went to Santa Monica College. There was a time when, uh, before I was a Christian, Santa Monica College out there. Come on. And I remember the, the lostness that I did feel the uncertainty, and I remember also how incredible it was to see a presence of uh, disciples on campus there inviting people out to a Bible talk on the lawn, and I just think that uh, we have such an awesome opportunity to reach this community here and college <laughs> students that are definitely seeking right now. So uh, thank you for coming this morning. We're going to continue our singing. Go ahead and stand up. We're uh, going to sing a song right now that speaks of the hope we have of the day when God will come and take all of his children home. And it's kind of a dream thinking about that day. Let's sing together, Lo, what a glorious sight. Lo, what a glorious sight appears to our believing eyes. The earth that 
fancy are passed away. The earth and sea, the earth and sea are passed away, and the Father, 
in heaven is awesome. exciting being in a new place singing sounds a lot better not that it was bad but I think it sounds awesome this morning uh, welcome again to Westside Church uh, we're going to transition here and take up our collection and uh, we'll have a scripture and uh, after that a few announcements but uh, you know I do want to say that if you're visiting with us this morning if maybe this is your first time or maybe you've come here a couple of weeks um, we're very happy that you're here. Uh, we do not expect you to participate in the contribution. This is really just for the members to support our work here, to rent facilities, to have staff, to have uh, events and things like that. So, uh, you know, I was thinking this week uh, about Jesus' miracles. And, of course, you might think uh, his two maybe most well-known miracles are, are changing water to wine and feeding the 5,000. So I was reading about this, feeding the 5,000, and of course there's a crowd following Jesus, and, you know, they need to be fed. So in John 6, verse 5 reads, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. You know, we got plenty of grass outside too, did you notice? There's plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish when they had all they had when they had had all they when they had all they when they all had had enough 
Well, that reads funny. When they all had had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Pretty phenomenal, feeding 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish. And, um, but this thing about the leftovers, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, what, first of all, what did they do with the leftovers? I mean, they don't have a refrigerator. They're itinerant sort of folk that move around. So, you know, why leftovers? And then if this is a miracle, if, you know, Jesus created this extra food to feed these extra people, I mean, he couldn't, like, get it exact. So, like, you know, there's a little leftovers. So, you know, I don't know. The, the leftover thing is, I don't know, just curious. And I think a lot of people say, well, there were 12 baskets, and so it was one for each of the 12 disciples to sort of, you know, convict them about their lack of faith, or maybe they didn't get to eat because they were helping pass, or, or whatever. You know, there's a lot of speculation about that. But this thing about the leftovers you know, and I think we look at this sometimes, and it's like, wow, you know, he fed 5,000, and they had leftovers. But I think we can also look at this and uh, say, wow, they had leftovers. Uh, you know, we look in our own lives, and sometimes it's easy to look at, after God has taken care of us, well, what do I have left? You know, we look at, well, what's, what's left after I've given my time, after I've given my money, after I've devoted lot my life to following Jesus? What's left? And I think that's one attitude that we can have, and especially when we talk about our contribution. Are we focused on what we have left, or are we focused on what God does and has done in our life, where he's taken a little bit and he's done a lot with it? And I think that's the thing to focus on that helps me want to think about contribution. So with that, let's pray, and uh, we'll be passing the trace. God, Father in heaven, thank you so much for today. We are excited to be in a new place. We uh, are excited to be in a new neighborhood here and hope many more people can get to know you. God, we're excited to be able to participate in the contribution. We do pray that even this little that we give, uh, a lot can be done with it, and uh, lost, lost people can be reached. Uh, poor and, and helpless people can be helped. And God, we just thank you so much for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. While they're passing the trays, we're going to have a few announcements. And then we have a very exciting speaker coming up here shortly. But uh, next Sunday, we're going to take advantage of that grass out front and you're all invited, encouraged to, to come and bring a lunch and picnic out there afterwards. So I don't know how that's going to be organized, but somebody will organize it. Just bring a lunch. And uh, another exciting event coming up soon, Daniel is going to tell us about. Where is he? There he is. All right. Where's all the men in the house? Whoa, whoa. Let me hear you. There you go. Okay. Uh, we have the uh, Dads and Lads camping event coming up. Now, um, I don't want to go too deep on you yet, okay, but, I, you know, I've been studying personally that a lot of the ills that society's facing have to do with a lack of fatherlessness. Amen? 
lack of fatherlessness, if we had more fatherly figures in our lives, men assuming their role and, and really mentoring our young men and women the way that we need them to. But this is an awesome opportunity. I'm excited to take my uh, four-year-old boy. He's never been in the wilderness. Sometimes, like somebody said, you know, last week, you got to take a boy away from his mom and get him out there and into the rugged wild. And then I'm like, how rugged wild is it going to be? Because I'm used to my, you know. So anyway, but uh, there's going to be an awesome group of men. You can um, go to our uh, Facebook page, which um, let me rewind that. If you go to our church website, this uh, there is a link for that um, event where you can register. So I will uh, make sure that all of our Group leaders have that information and can pass that on along to you. Please sign up on there. There's uh, food that is going to be provided for two dinners, and all the details are on there. But I just wanted to extend a warm invitation to you. Even if you're not a father taking your son, there's possibly a young man that would enjoy going out and just spending the time and having great fellowship together. Amen? Amen. Thanks. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, you know, We've been in a new place. We have people sort of coming and going. In addition to our guest speaker, uh, I know Ron Brumley is here, who's uh, sort of a, a longtime friend of the church. He's an elder or has been an elder in various places, uh, Seattle, I think, at the moment. But he's in the audience, and there's some other folks, and we're happy to have them. Uh, on a sad note, we're saying goodbye today to uh, one of our campus students who's going on up to help with the teen ministry in the North region. So... The teens up there are getting a great gem in Jessica Evans. So let's be sure we say goodbye to Jessica today. Where is she? Jessica, can you stand? Where are you? I don't see you. Anyway, great job. Uh, one last thing, I believe, is that, uh, I don't know, I guess I didn't bring it, but uh, you should have gotten with your newsletter, which holds everything else that I'm not telling you about you should have gotten an elders update. Uh, this was written by Al Baird and with consultation from their other elders. But, uh, you know, they felt like with some of the recent events that one of the things lacking was communication. So Al's jumped on that and has started to reinstate his elders update. And uh, that's being distributed today. You'll get a chance to read that. And uh, hopefully that will continue and be helpful and informative for all of us. So I believe that's all the announcements and now we're going to have a, another song followed by our guest speaker. Our guest speaker today, uh, it's very exciting. Well, he'll be here today, next week, and uh, then again two weeks after that. He is the new director of the Pacific School of Ministry here in Los Angeles, an accomplished author, preacher, teacher, elder, and evangelist. And he's probably read a few announcements too. Uh, he uh, graduated from Northeastern State University and the Harding Graduate School with a uh, degree in New Testament studies, New Testament theology, something like that. And recently has started training programs uh, outside the United States, in, uh, in addition to New, uh, New England, also in Europe, Asia, and the Ukraine. Uh, a native of Louisiana and uh, married to his wife, Teresa, for 48 years. And uh, they have two children and five, ch five grandchildren. So after our next song, please welcome our speaker, Gordon Ferguson.
Amen. Gordon's going to be preaching on faith, the definition of faith, and uh, we're going to sing a song that's about our faith called My Hope is Built on, and it's uh, about our faith being built on Jesus and what a solid rock that is for us. Uh, so we're going to all stand and sing this song together. Uh, just want to mention it's great to be with you. I always love when I get to be with you. My home base is in South Bay, but I love being in Westside. And personally, I just want to say I love this space. Uh, I love the way our voices are a little bit pulled in. It helps our singing a lot. And uh, I just love Santa Monica. Everyone in the world has heard of Santa Monica. So it's cool to be in this city that everyone in the world knows and to be able to reach people here. So I I think it's cool. My Hope is Built, song number 463. Jesus' blood and a righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground. When darkness fails his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. This covenant is oath this covenant is blood. Support me in the world. When all around my hope is way, he then is all my hope that stay on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is All right, before we sing this last verse, let's think about how awesome it's going to be when he comes back and calls us home. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressing his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Westside, welcome to Gordon Ferguson. Okay. 
Good morning. Sound is working, right? It is good to be here. This is a new facility. It's a very good one. Not only do you sing well, but the acoustics are good in here. Every building is different, but uh, they're very good here. Good to be in the west side today. We've uh, been uh, back in California uh, since November. We live in Irvine. It's wonderful to drive here on a Sunday morning with no traffic. It's really fast. Al said it would take an hour. It took me about 49 minutes. That's because everybody drives fast when the roads are clear because they know it's not often that way. And I like to drive fast. I lived 16 years in Boston. Uh, as one guy said, I always wanted to be able to drive like this and not worry about getting a ticket. That was the way it was in Boston. So far, no tickets here either. Amen. Of course, I live in Irvine. Lots of stuff goes on. They don't have very much crime, and so they look for little things to get you for. So uh, I'll have to be more careful probably. Anyway, my wife sends her greetings. Uh, she will be here next week, but she's in a, about four different studies, and she wants to be with all her women she's uh, studying with today, but probably will be with me next week and uh, then one of the other weeks at least that I'll be here, four all together. Uh, it's uh, sort of like a, a reunion of San Diego people. Uh, Ron Bumley, I mean Brumley, uh, I said that on purpose of course, but anyway, we go way back. Uh, we used to sort of dress alike, and after I'd preach, people would come by and say, we really enjoyed your sermon. And he would say, thank you. Uh, actually, I always thought I was a lot better looking than Ron, but that's, you know, some people get confused easily. But it's also uh, great to see a lot of you that I've known from other places. Uh, I remember faces well, names I'm not so good at. I do remember Tim Priestley because he almost lived, I thought he lived in our house. He was there every day uh, back years ago in Boston and was like a son to us and is. But uh, at any rate, it is good to be with all of you and be able to share a lesson with you today that really kicks off a series on the subject of faith. And so uh, it is titled, Faith, God's Definition of It, the lesson for today. Without faith, the Bible says we can't please God, but what is faith really? And one of the things that got me off on this is that I've had a couple of conversations recently it made me do a lot of thinking, and I'm going to need to do a lot of explaining and have. And I thought, you know, this would make a good series. And so I was uh, talking with this elderly gentleman. That means he's older than me. Uh, I was studying the Bible with this elderly gentleman, and one night, sort of sarcastically, he said, uh, believe, 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 just believe, that's all you got to do. And he was saying it sarcastically, but I understood from the religious world how you can certainly get that idea. Faith, 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 and if you just believe in Jesus, nothing else much matters and you're all right. And that is sort of the concept of the religious world, isn't it? And so this old gentleman was a little disturbed by that. I'm not sure what all prompted it, but he was a little disturbed. Then last week, we had a couple that we're studying with. Um, One's a doctor, one's a lawyer, but they came to the marriage retreat and we had dinner with them after the Saturday session. 
And so they said to us, in the midst of a conversation over dinner, they said, we've got friends from our former church in the area, large church, they said uh, some negative things about your church, and then they threw out a label that they had called us, etc., and they wanted to know why. Why do they say negative things and call you names? And I said, well, a lot of it probably has to do with how we would define faith that pleases God. And so we will study more with them about that. They weren't really deterred by what they heard because they've been around us long enough to really believe that we're sincere about what we're doing and we're Bible-based and we're always open to what the Bible actually teaches. Uh, and so uh, we're fine, I think, and they'll be fine. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says that the big three are faith, hope, and love, and love is the greatest. Now when it comes down to defining these, uh, hope and love are not that difficult to define. There are a number of words uh, for love. Greek terms. You've got the word agape, which is the deeper love, uh, the love that defines God's nature. And then you've got the word filet, which is the friendship type of love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, which it's everything, but uh, at any rate, uh, we've got that word. And then we've got uh, family love, which is storge. And we have uh, that in the negative form in Romans 1. And then a word that's not in the New Testament, but a Greek term for love, uh, is the word uh, eros, which is sexual love. And so the different Greek words help us define that term. Hope is easy to find as well, biblically. It's one of those words, considering it's in the top three here, it's one of those words we don't study much about, really. Probably need a series on that just because we're fairly ignorant of what the Bible actually does teach about that one, but it's not that hard to define. The one that is harder to define is actually the term faith. It's more complex because it's used in a variety of different ways in the New Testament, and that has led to confusion. And it's not surprising that it would be confu confusing because Satan is the master deceiver and he is into getting people confused and since the Bible says over and over we're saved by grace through faith, that's Ephesians 2, but many other passages teach that we're saved by faith, it's not surprising that Satan would try to get us confused about what faith really is. And so today we're going to dig into it a bit. Uh, there are days that I am primarily having a teacher's hat on, not many days like that. That's just mainly academia. Uh, I don't really... Uh, like to do that one so much, but occasionally I do. And then there are days that I'm mainly just flat out a preacher, exhorting and convicting and trying to get people to do what God asked them to do. Uh, but most of the time, 90% of the time, I'm either a teacher-preacher or a preacher-teacher, meaning that I've got both elements and one may dominate a little one time and one another time. Today, I'll be mainly a teacher-preacher. Uh, because there are a lot of passages I want us to look at just to help you get a broader understanding of this word faith. And I'll find a way to preach in here a bit as well, but less than normal probably. I never quite know, you know, until I'm up here and 
sort of sense where things are and watch your faces and see how you're reacting and sometimes that helps me know which way to go. Sometimes I have to shout loud to keep you awake or tell a joke, but this is such a great group, I'm sure none of that will be necessary today. Uh, you will be listening with rapt attention and get everything that I say. So, faith is a word with many nuances of meaning. Sometimes the term denotes simply intellectual belief. Now, I'm going to mention a number of ways. When I used to train ministers in a training school way back in the mainline Church of Christ, I, I said that the, the, the Bible uses the term faith or belief in at least five ways. And after class one day, a student came up after I explained those five and said, well, how about this verse? Isn't this a different way? I said, aha, from now on I will say the Bible uses the term faith in at least six different ways. And here they are. Sometimes intellectual belief. For example, Romans 10, 14 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And so you've got to have preaching and hearing and believing and calling. Calling is the last step he mentioned. You have to define that one too. But it goes beyond just believing, right? Here, belief is used simply in the sense of accepting something to be true intellectually. Okay, then the next way. Sometimes it means... Wait, it didn't click. There we go. Uh, sometimes it describes the concept of trust. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, he says, We live by faith, not by sight. And that uh, is using the term faith in the sense of trust. It's in a context about what happens after death, that we still are alive, that we then have a spiritual body designed for eternity that comes from God. We meet God in the judgment day. It's that sort of a passage. But he says we walk by faith and not by sight, and that simply means trust. And we'll talk a little more about that one later, but it's one of the predominant ways the Bible uses it. We've got to trust, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, sometimes it's used to refer to the New Testament as God's covenant with us. And so it refers to the faith, the definite article, the, is in front of faith, and in that case, it's referring to the gospel message, or what we call the New Covenant, the New Testament. And so in Jude 1, has only one chapter, but anyway, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt that I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered or entrusted to the saints. And so it's used in the sense of the New Testament or the New Covenant. Uh, then we have it used in the sense of a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. This is an interesting usage. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, he lists gifts of the Holy Spirit that seem to be all miraculous. And in the midst of that, he says to another, faith by the same Spirit. But he mentions healing and speaking another language and interpreting other languages and uh, uh, healing, miraculous work, all kinds of 
miraculous gifts of the Spirit that were in the early century church, uh, but he mentions faith. It seems to me that I can explain most of those pretty simply, but this one is a little harder. I'm not exactly sure what a miraculous gift of faith looked like, to be honest with you, uh, but it's in the list. Then it expresses the idea of a personal conviction based on our individual consciences. And so this is found in Romans 14, which is a chapter about what he calls matters of opinion. And he's saying basically in the chapter that when it concerns someone else, recognize they have liberty in areas of opinion, but regarding yourself, you better live within your own conscience on the matter, your own personal conviction. And so he says, the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, they're talking about eating meats, etc., because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin, but in the context, it is talking about your own personal conviction based on your individual conscience. So that's the fifth way it's used. Then he talks about, and this is a very important part, he talks about faith in a broad sense that encompasses quite a lot. And so when you see in the Bible a passage that says faith and salvation, be it Ephesians 2, John 3, 16, whatever else, faith is used in a much broader sense than a lot of people understand. It encompasses the whole of man's response to God. And we'll look at some passages that, that will, I think, demonstrate that clearly. So, we can get confused and miss out on some very important concepts if we don't get hold of that sixth way that the word faith is used in the New Testament, okay? Now, some faith doesn't please God. So, we've got the variety of six ways the word faith is used. Some faith does not please God. And so my older friend who says, bleed, 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 that's all you got to do, with a bit of disdain when he said it, uh, he, he actually understood something deeper, and I think it's probably this point. Some faith does not please God. Self-righteous faith does not please him. Look at this one. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. A lot of people would stop right there and say, aha, all these guys got saved. Uh-uh, not if you read it. He says then, uh, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus says, if, conditional, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. One of my favorite passages they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And when you read the context, these dudes are self-righteous to the core. They started believing. But then when he said, you've got a problem called sin, you are enslaved to it, and you need to be set free by holding to the truth, that's when they started getting agitated and saying, wait a minute, you know who you're talking to. You're talking to the people of God. We are the covenant people. What do you mean we'll be set free? 
It was that self-righteousness that kept them from being saved. And then fearful faith or hidden faith certainly does not please God, John 12. Yet at the same time, many, among, even among the leaders, believed in him. A lot of people would stop there and say, wow, these leaders got saved. No, they didn't. It says, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. You're not going to argue they're saved, right? Jesus said, you don't confess me, I won't confess you. You confess me, I'll confess you. So I know these guys didn't get saved, even though they had a form of faith, didn't they? Not that comprehensive form uh, that we will talk more about. Then faith in words only is dead, and it cannot please God. I love the book of James. Uh, my last trip to Asia, I taught it. But I love it because it's written by Jesus' half-brother James, and he was just about as blunt as Jesus was. He learned a lot from his brother when he finally caught on to it. James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? And the answer, obviously, rhetorical question, is no. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So that won't save. So then let's look at the faith that pleases God. All the rest of that is sort of building up just to broaden your understanding of faith. And if you learn nothing today out of all that I've said, you can preach next week, okay? And I'll listen to you. Uh, because there are a lot of little things to learn within those various uses of the word faith or belief. What is faith that pleases God? Here is my favorite passage in the Bible about saving faith. It is the most comprehensive. It's not long. It's a verse. But it's the most comprehensive in describing what will make you right with God. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, here's why that passage is so good. He is taking three of those six elements that directly relate to man and his response to God, and he's putting them in one verse and saying, this constitutes a faith that does please God and therefore does save. First, it is a faith that believes. You've got to believe that God exists. Secondly, it's a faith that trusts. It's you believe that God exists and that he rewards. That's the matter of trusting that God will bless you and do what he said he would do for you if you're faithful to him. And then he says that it's a faith that earnestly seeks God. It does something. Basically, it obeys God. Now, why... Uh, 
What do we believe and what do we trust and what do we obey? Because those are the three parts of a saving faith. You got to believe, you got to trust, you got to obey. Okay, now what is it that we respond to? If you look at Romans 10:17, he says that faith comes by hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So we know that biblical faith is not just wistful thinking, it's always based on the word of God. Okay, that's a very important principle. Real faith is not just sort of what you wishfully hope for. It is based on the solid rock of the revealed message of God. That's what faith is. Now, when you think about the Word of God, how does it come to us? What's the form in which it comes? Uh, so faith is based on the gospel message. But what's the form? The Bible comes to us in the form of facts, promises, and commands. That's how it comes to us. And so we believe the facts of the Bible, we trust the promises of the Bible, and we obey the commands of the Bible. And so in a sense, in a real sense, a faith that pleases God is one that takes God at his word. We believe the facts, we trust the promises, we obey the commands. That's the best definition of a saving faith to be found in the Bible in my judgment. Now, a fact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that. I can't obey it. There's nothing I can do in response to it except believe it. But if God gives a promise, I can't just say, that's nice, up here. I've got to get it down here and say, if God said it, I am going to trust it and live a life that reflects my trust in the promise. Then, if God gives a command, you can't say, well, isn't that sweet? <laughs> if he gives a command, the only way to please God is to do what he said. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I've said? If it's a command, there's only one right response, and that is obedience. And so faith that saves is a faith that believes the facts, trusts the promises, and obeys the commands, okay? If you remember that, that'll help you sometime in a study with someone, I can promise you. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, has two parts. It says that you come into a right relationship with God by being taught enough to make a decision to become a disciple and get baptized. That gets us into a relationship with Christ. Then comes the hard part. Having the baby, I know that's hard, ladies, if you've done it or ever do it, uh, but it, it does go by fairly fast. But then you, you got these little dudes and you got to raise them. The raising part, there's the challenge. And so the easy part of the Great Commission is the part to get saved, and then you are to be taught to obey Everything that Jesus taught, everything, obey it all. Okay, now that becomes the harder part of the whole Christian experience. Getting saved, but then getting matured by obeying everything that Jesus commanded. 
Now, turn over to Acts 16. This will help us with the first part of it, and having faith and getting saved. I went through this with uh, someone just a few days ago again. But I love this passage because it gives a graphic illustration of what it is to have faith that saves you initially, gets you into a saved relationship with God. So let's pick up in verse 25. This is after Paul and Silas got busted out of jail through an earthquake. And uh, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Unusual reaction if you just got whipped and put in stocks. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And that's what would happen to you. Remember back in Acts 12, that did happen to some uh, soldiers guarding the apostles in jail. But that's what happened and so they decided, he decided to just kill himself and save the trial and all the other stuff. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Some people stop reading right there. But this guy doesn't know what to believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He doesn't know what to believe yet. So logically and biblically, it says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, keep in mind this is after midnight, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. One time I was studying with a couple and they said he had been baptized, but they didn't know anything much about it and didn't know if it was biblical or not. And I said, well, tell me this. In your church, do you ever have a baptism after midnight? They said, oh, no, no. We have a baptismal service once every six months. And I said, well, then obviously something was taught differently here than you've been taught. Uh, logical, right? Why did they go out after midnight? This guy is risking his life taking two prisoners out after midnight. If those guys run, he's done. He's going to go back and get his sword and fall on it then. And so he went out. So that says that this is a part of a saving faith that gets you right with God. And so they all got baptized. But then notice 34. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So when it says he came to believe, that's the broad sense of the word believe or faith, right? It encompassed the entire thing, the hearing of the message, the uh, conviction the determination to be a disciple of Jesus and to go out after midnight to get baptized so he could be right with God. I was talking to someone the other day. They said when they got baptized, 
they had studied the Bible and someone said, well, uh, when do you want to get baptized? He said, right now, I'm lost. I want to get baptized now. Well, you want to call somebody to come over? You want to call your family? You want to do this? He said, listen, I am lost. I ain't getting in that car again. Get me baptized. <laughs> he understood, see, that faith in the broad sense encomp uh, uh, encompasses baptism. Sometimes you have faith and baptism mentioned separately, but in this case, the whole process is summed up in order to get saved initially. The easier part. And so uh, he came to believe in God. Now, let's take a look at ourselves. If we've already done that, then we're on the second part of the Great Commission, right? Being taught to obey everything Jesus commanded. So where are we in the maturation process? Where are you? I doubt that we have too many that have gone through the initial salvation process who have a problem with believing the facts. Uh, I think we probably believe the facts of the Bible. How about trusting the promises? Well, how well do you trust the promises God has given for your life? Without interviewing all of you, uh, I just ask you, what is your anxiety level and your worry level? That tells you right there whether you trust the promises or not, doesn't it? You know, one time I mentioned this wife of an elder in my old church, and uh, I was, she, she was one of these people that was wound up really tight and anxious about everything. And I, and I, said, I, I said, do you realize that they say that 95% of everything we worry about never even comes to pass? She said, exactly. So the more I worry about, the more I prohibit from happening. I was thinking as I looked at her and her husband, I said, I'm glad you're married to her baby and not me. Uh, you can imagine she was not a real happy camper, right? But, uh, you know, sometimes we have a lot of anxiety. How, how about the uh, commands? How are we doing with the commands? Have you been satisfied with obeying certain ones and not obeying everything that Jesus commanded? You know, I think about finances. I've been uh, doing a two-part series in several places, including Orange County, where I live. I've uh, been doing a two-part series on finances and giving and all of that, and they're very straightforward, challenging lessons. I'm doing them in another region now, and we'll do them in at least one more. They're, they're very good lessons. And, uh, you know, I have to beg people, don't put up the defense shields. I take a good while in the introduction messing around and being funny, trying to get people not to put up the defense shields because a lot of times when you talk about money and giving, people just go like that. Well, what does that mean? It means I don't care what the Bible teaches, I'm going to do what I want to with my money. That's what it means. In other words, I will not, I don't care what it says, I am not obeying that one. Well, that'll get you to the warm place. Like one old preacher said, I don't think you can give your way into heaven, but I flat out think you can miser your way into hell. <laughs> so do I. I think not just about giving, I think about 
midweek attendance. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Gordon. There is not a passage in the Bible that says you've got to go to church at midweek. Really? You know, I, I do remember reading uh, Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They give watch over you as men who will give an account, who must give an account, obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would mean no advantage to you. I, I don't know how you do it in L.A., but I've been in a lot of churches. I've never heard any leader say, well, we're just going to give you a nice little suggestion here. It'd be nice to come to midweek. It'd do you good, probably. <laughs> do your leaders just give you suggestions about midweek, or do they say you need to come? We live in a rough world. We, we live a life that's full of challenges. We need some help in the middle of the week between Sundays. Uh, you know, I got a friend in another country. He's got a lot of influence. He, uh, because he has a lot of influence, he has sort of seen himself as an exception. He, he didn't really need midweek. I got a call yesterday. This brother has committed a sin that could destroy his life, his marriage, and his influence and hurt a whole lot of people. You see, he didn't need midweek. He was the exception. He was the privileged one. I go to midweek. You know why I go to midweek? because the leaders asked me to do it and because I know that I need it. I need all the help I can get. Now, am I always jumping up and down for joy to go to midweek? No. I remember going through a phase some years back when midweeks really left a lot to be desired back in the day. I won't go into the details, but anyway, I, I can remember thinking, I, I don't want to go, man. I'm on staff, and I don't want to go. <laughs> and then I decided, you know, what if I went? And I prayed before I went, and I said, God, no matter what goes on, how lousy the lesson is or whatever else, you can tell I had a bad attitude. Yeah. You always tell a bad attitude because of, you know, all the words and the adjectives and stuff that get used. But anyway, I said, what if I went up, and I said, God, give me two or three people that really need encouragement. Lead me to them. And in the fellowship, I'm going to minister to them. You know, I started doing that. I started loving midweeks again. Because I was giving. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I got out of myself, my navel-gazing, and my selfishness, and my sin, and decided, why don't you just go be a giver like Jesus? Wouldn't that be a nice thing? Last week, a fertilizer plant blew up. It killed, what's the count, 15 now? The only, there's a mainline church of Christ there. That's my root system. Keep up a little with some of it. There's a mainline church of Christ in the small town. The fertilizer plant blew up during a midweek service. The only house that got destroyed was the preacher's house. 
He and his entire family were at midweek service. It destroyed their house, killed all their pets, and would have killed them had they been there. So you can never tell, guys. <laughs> I, I live on the bottom part of a three-story condo. If I start feeling this wiggly stuff called earthquakes, I'm telling you, I'm out the back door quick. But if it happens on midweek, I know where I won't be. I come back and look at the stubble and the, and the collapse and all that after midweek's over. Okay, it might save your life. I think about evangelism. I think about a number of other basics. Guys, we can pick and choose our way to the rejection of God's word, which is to say our faith is gone by picking and choosing what we decide to obey or not obey. I think this is a serious matter. So I don't know you, most of you, I know some of you, but I don't know most of you, I don't know where you are. But I know this, I know churches well enough right now to know that we got people in here that ought to repent. You ought to get over whatever it is that's bugging you. Some of you are lazy. You want to do what you want to do. Some of you got attitudes that you need to repent of. I used to have those. I told you about that midweek thing, right? I'm human too. I have to fight attitudes too, but I repent. Uh, I, I want to be what God's called me to be. I want to trust him, and I want to obey him, and I want my example to be good, okay? So I had to throw a little preaching in, right? Did a lot of teaching today, but I don't ever let you go without a little preaching. Uh, if you don't like it, uh, just hold your breath. I'm, I'm coming four times, and you can probably get through it. Uh, I mess around with you a lot, but I'm serious about this stuff, guys. My Bible says if you don't give up everything you have for God, you can't be his disciple. And I don't think there are double standards here. I don't think like the churches I used to be in. We had this standard for kind of leader guys or, or kind of committed weirdos. And then we had the other level for all the rest of us. I never read those two levels in the Bible which is ultimately what got me into this movement, even though I was a minister in another group of churches. Because I want to be a part of where we all took seriously the Word of God and lived by faith. Now, amen, good. Uh, the older gentleman I mentioned earlier in the introduction, the one, you know, believe, 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 that guy, he was baptized Thursday night. At age 78, his daughter became a Christian when she was 17. She's been working on him. She has teenage children herself now. She has worked on him since she was 17 years old, and he made it. Uh, I love the term faith, partly because it is complex and because that makes it all the richer when we study it out. Whether we're talking about entering that 
relationship to be saved originally are talking about the second part of the Great Commission. Uh, it's uh, essential that we understand the concept and do what God has said. And it ends up with a verse here that all of us will do well to listen to. Uh, Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Faith's a broad word. It's a wonderful word. It's amazing that God can save us. I've talked mainly about our response to God, but you know everything God gives us is a gift. Faith is a gift. Repentance is called a gift. The fact that God gives us an opportunity in spite of all the sin we've committed, that he gives us an opportunity to accept his grace by our faith that throws ourselves at the foot of the cross and says, God, I'm a mess. But praise Jesus, he died for me, and now I just want to accept him. We're going to take communion. And uh, I think about faith and communion. I think about the fact in 1 Corinthians 11, the longest passage on communion. He says faith sort of looks four ways. It looks inward. He said it looks outward to my brothers and sisters so that we're united and together in heart and we are really communing as a corporate group, a real family spiritually. It looks upward to Jesus and it looks forward to his return. But it's all about faith. No matter which way you're looking, it's all about our faith and our dependence on God. Because ultimately we're saved by his grace, not simply by our faith. Faith isn't so much what saves us. It does in one sense. But the better way to look at it in my judgment is faith is our wholehearted reaching up to God to accept his grace for what Jesus has done for us that makes salvation possible. Let's pray in communion. Father, we're grateful to Jesus for his love and for his death. We're grateful for his faith that enabled him to be a sinless offering. He had a faith that prompted him every day to do exactly what you wanted him to do, to believe exactly what you wanted him to believe, to say exactly what you wanted him to say. Amazing, he did it every last day of his life. And because of his faith, he could be that sinless offering that allows us in our weak faith but sincere faith to reach up to you, to accept your grace, to revel in the cross, God, and to commune together as a body of brothers and sisters that are eternally grateful to you and to those that you've used in our lives to help us know you and to continue to help us know you. God, we just want to uh, honor you and just to tell you as we commune how much we love you and how much we appreciate the cross. Bless us as we take this bread and this fruit of the vine. In Jesus' name, amen.
cares for me. teaching us this morning, for preaching a little bit. It's been a wonderful service. I have some great news to share with you. Uh, last week at Point Magoo, after the campus retreat, Elizabeth Chen was baptized. Where's Elizabeth? So we're very excited for Elizabeth and welcoming her into the UCLA campus ministry and to our family ministry. Go ahead and stand. We're going to sing one final song before we're dismissed this Sunday afternoon. Well, I hear God singing to me. Every nation must be saved. Well, I hear God singing to me. Every challenge must be brave. Well, I feel God's spirit in me. Quench it not too much at stake. Well, I And I hear my God, he's singing to me. I 
Thank you.